Every culture, every civilization is obsessed with one thing, itself. We judge others as a measure against ourselves and use terms like first world, third world and developed worlds to show not only what we are not, but what we are. On the long road to civilization, it is therefore the fate of those who are in society, but not part of it, to meet some very strange fates indeed. Also on that long road civilization, as we move further away from the country and into the city, it was very common to meet something of the wild, the feral and the throwback and let it obsess us into that most pervasive of histories, namely folklore. Today we're going to look at a piece of folklore and a piece of history that serves to remind us that in the long history of his civilization, we were often anything but civilized, and that the wild will always be with us. My name is Richard Shepard, and this is Hallowed Histories. The Woodwoes is an old English name for a wild man of the woods. A mythical figure that first appeared in medieval Europe and was depicted covered from head to toe in thick hair and carrying a club. Carvings of these curious creatures began to appear in English churches during the 12th century, carefully cut into fonts, spandrels, and roof bosses, in precisely the same places where you'd find its close relative, the Green Man. Although often terrifying in appearance, the Woodwows were often shown fighting lions and dragons, and it was widely believed that the Woodwows would scare away evil spirits. This did not, however, prevent them sometimes from becoming like a medieval bogeyman who could be used as warnings for wayward children. In some of the depictions, the Woodwose's club often includes a child tied to it, and children had every right to have nightmares about the Woodwoses. According to some legends, they had superhuman strength, were deaf to the word of God, and some would think of nothing of snatching a child away from its bed and eating them. Adults had to be on their guard too. Male woodwoses were said to have abducted human women due to their insatiable appetite. And you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to read too much into the giant clubs the male woodwoses would carry. Their female counterparts, far rarer to see in Carver's interpretations, although there is one shown in the font at St. Catherine's Church in Ludham, were said to be able to disguise themselves as humans in order to seduce men. Another twist on the legend is that if a woodwose is shown with an upraised club, is yet to be converted to Christianity. If the club points down, the conversion has taken place. This legend of the Woodwows, uh, a wild man not bound by the laws of the realm, does, however, extend beyond the pages of fantasy and myth, as we should see in the case of Peter, the wild boy, who after many tumultuous years found himself destitute on the streets of Norwich. In 1724, in the forest of Hertzwald near Hamlin in northern Germany, some peasants trapped a wild boy. Presumed to be roughly about 12 years of age, he was naked and ran on all fours and could climb trees like a squirrel. He was filthy and his skin was cracked and browned by the sun. His hair was long and matted and his fingernails were like claws. He refused to eat cooked meat, preferring carrion with a few wild nuts and berries, and he spoke in a language of grunts, hums and whinnies that nobody could understand. After a spell first in the House of Correction in Ull, the boy was taken to the court of George I, Duke of Hanover and King of the United Kingdom. There he caused a sensation at court, and his carefree nature provided an amusing antidote to the stultifying boredom and decorum of court life. He appealed especially to Caroline, Princess of Wales, 
who persuaded the king to allow Peter to move to a residence at St. James's Palace in London's West End, where he was kept as little more than a pet. Peter, who had never lived under a roof before, let alone with other people, was shocked by what he saw at court. Watching a man remove his stockings, Peter was terrified. For you see, he thought the man was removing the skin of his legs with great ease. Wrestled into clothes each day, he was presented before court where he ran about howling and dipping his hands in the pockets of the gentry looking for shiny objects or good things to eat. Eventually, when some of the novelty of having an unkempt pickpocket around had worn off, George I arranged for his education. He was then even baptised, and finally given a name, Peter. While the wits of the day opined that the boy might be corrupted by the notoriously decadent life of London high society, others saw in him an ideal test case for the nascent science of anthropology and psychology. To the new thinkers of the Age of Reason, Peter represented a blank slate. As humanity in its raw state, he was what Jean-Jacques Rousseau called the noble savage, a man unsupported by society and civilization. You see, the existence of Peter made society question itself and how far it had come along. He was undoubtedly human, but lacking speech and socialization, could he be classed as a man? Could he have a soul? Could he possess a power of thought? Daniel Defoe addressed a subject in his pamphlet, Mere Nature Delineated, published in 1726. There he described Peter as an object of pity, but as clearly having a soul, proved by his possession of the gift of laughter, a sense of humour, it seemed, was still the most important thing to some people. Defoe goes on and describes Peter's situation as being in a state of mere nature, like a ship without a rudder, and it would be the task of his tutors to bring him to the use of his reason if he could receive instruction, if he could be taught to heed his soul, and then he would become a man, and what was more, he would be a lesson to us all. Especially, continues Defoe, those who think nobody so wise as themselves. However, Peter was unable to disabuse him of their wilder conjectures, and his mystery only deepened, fueling the debate and spurring the theorists. No matter the effort, the boy would learn nothing from his tutors, neither to read, write, or speak English. In 1727, a premature report of his death gave rise to a mocking epitaph in a British journal, which read, Inquire how the wild yaunt ye yahoos mourn, for in this place lies dead the glory of your race. One who from Adam has descent, yet never did what he might repent, but overed, unblemished, to fifteen, and yet, O oh, strange, a court has seen, was solely ruled by nature's laws, and did a martyr in her guise. Now reign, you humanims, for mankind have no such Peter left behind. None like the dear departed youth, returned for purity and truth. He was your rival, and our box. I were ever, ever, ever lost. Peter's resemblance to Swift's fantastical characters had clearly not been missed, and the satirist who had created the absurdities created by Gulliver in his travels risked seeing Peter written off as a mere hoax. In a sense, you see, the philosophers of the Age of Reason had met their match. Peter would not fit into the boxes and theories that people had designed for him. Although known as having a gentle nature, Peter nonetheless tried constantly to escape what he could only assume to be his prison. Only he was too wild, he was restrained in a straitjacket or beaten severely with a broad leather strap. And slowly the question of Peter the Wild Boy reached too many contradictions and dead ends. Although whatever his ailments, either natural or man-made, Peter was not forgotten by the royal court. 
His keep was paid by the Crown for nearly 60 years through three reigns, and there's still a portrait of him at Kensington Palace. He couldn't stay at the court, though. It was obviously killing him, and the court had a never-ending passion for new novelties. So the court paid a farmer in Hertfordshire to look after Peter from then on. Here, Peter appeared to be happier. By day, he helped in daily duties around the farm, and in the evening would sit on the hearthstone, mesmerised by the fire in the grate, drinking a glass of gin, for which he had developed a taste, and enjoying music, reportedly swaying and clapping with glee and dancing until he was exhausted. His real pleasure, it was reported, seemed to be at night time, when he would wander the land and sleep underneath the stars, and he continued to live this way until middle age. There are then several accounts of his disappearance from this idyllic countryside life. One article suggested that in 1745, the year of the Jacobite Rebellion, he was arrested as a suspected Highlander. While others accounts suggest that one evening he left the farmhouse to wander as usual, and mysteriously never returned to his kindly benefactor. After a time he was presumed dead or lost never to return. However, one month later, in September of 1751, a surly vagrant was arrested in Norwich. He was described as having a thick black beard, long hair intertwined with sticks and leaves, and a wild look in his eyes. His description matched that of Wild Peter, and my friend Laszlo, yet it could not be confirmed. Uncommutative, the authorities did not know quite what to do with him. He had committed no crime except that of begging and vagrancy, so they put him in Brightwell Jail, where he could not make a nuisance of himself until they could better determine his fate. One night, nearly a month later, a fire broke out in Bridewell Alley, which spread quickly from house to house until it completely engulfed the area, including the jail. The inmates incarcerated within were in danger of perishing, either a result of the fire or smoke inhalation. The wardens had no choice but to open the cells and the gates, and most prisoners managed to escape into the smoke-filled labyrinth of nearby streets. Only one inmate remained, transfixed as always by the fires. The jailers attempted to rescue him, but before they could get to him, the roof collapsed. Astonishingly, the wild man managed to survive and was remanded to a nearby parochial workhouse. A certain amount of interest was generated as a result of this tale, but one day a Norwich gentleman came to the workhouse showing the attendance an advertisement from the London Evening Press describing Peter's disappearance from the Hertfordshire farm where he had lived the majority of his life. He was returned and lived there happily until the death of the elderly farmer who had taken him by royal decree. Once his adopted father died, Peter refused all food and perished himself less than a month later, in February of 1785 at the age of roughly 73. The people of Norwich, so enamoured by this tale of its former local resident, erected a gravestone in his honour by public subscription. You can go and see it today. It remains there with the inscription, Peter the Wild Boy, 1785. And the monument is rarely without flowers. Another monument to Peter also remains in Norwich, the Wild Man Pub. Named in his honour with his effigy painted onto the pub sign depicting him so far away in his original German forest which he had called home until society had come for him. On the painting he stands with a bear on either side, representing what some thought may have been his true parents. This episode of Hallowed Histories was recorded not in our usual studios, although we hope to be back there soon, but instead at our home by me, Richard Shepherd. The research was done by Dr. Linda Shepherd, and the technical wizardry by the original wild man himself, Stephen Leslie Parks. Please write to us at hallowedhistories at gmail.com, 
And we'd love it if you could uh, leave a review, like, subscribe, and rate this episode and recommend it to as many of your friends who like a walk on the wild side as we do. Thank you very much.